0: Well, we're actually going to go back to chapter 2 in First Peter this week. I, um, this is what happens when the pastor doesn't look at his preaching schedule that he put together months ago with the team. And I got ahead of myself last week, and I, I went too far in the text, and then I looked at the schedule. This was what he preaching on, on Tuesday, and I looked at that and said, oh, I went too far. So I get to go back, and uh, it really it works out because I found myself thinking last week at the last minute before Sunday that there was far more to be said about the end of chapter two, and now I get a chance to go back and say it. So it works out really well. Um, G.K. Chesterton. If you've not ever read Chesterton, uh, we were just laughing. Shrock and I were laughing just before we started about the spiritual gifts and love languages, and that one of my love languages is sarcasm. And so, if you're, if one of your love languages is sarcasm, you should read Chesterton because his wit is razor sharp. It's so good. So good. And um, if, if you get a chance, pick up the book Orthodoxy by Chesterton Reed. And in it, he asks the question. He says, I want you to imagine the perfect person. Just try to imagine the perfect person. And then he asks the question, he said, how would you like that person? And, and I think most of us are initially we go, oh, I would love to meet the perfect person and spend time with them. And then he, he actually flips the script and says, actually, you wouldn't you wouldn't not really not not at all after a few moments of being around the perfect person you wouldn't like them at all they would be a constant reminder of your failures your shortcomings your sin and so the reason people don't like Jesus is because he's too tall right and and tall people don't like Jesus because he's too short. and and heavy people, Jesus is too thin. And with thin people, Jesus is too heavy. And religious legalists can't stand Jesus because of his freedom in worship. And and the free-spirited people can't take Jesus for very long because he has too much to say about propriety and worship. And he's the perfect, right? And so he offends everybody. He offends everybody. So what is fallen man to do with that reality? Well, we do what comes naturally to us. What Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories, and so we make idols. We make little gods in our image instead of worshiping the God in whose image we are made. And the situation is really dangerous because we are worshiping a distorted Jesus if we're worshiping him at all in that place of idolatry. And in the reality, so so we're going to unpack this today, the spiritual truth is, the principle is, we become like what we worship and so if we're worshiping anything other than one, the one true and living God, our idols are becoming our identity, and we're becoming like our idols. And so we, we claim a life in Jesus as our identity. If we're followers of Jesus, we say, that's not true of me. I claim uh, a life in Christ, and that is my identity. And so then Jesus calls those of us who place faith in his sufficient work to to follow him. He says, come after me, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus said at one point during his earthly ministry, when a disciple is fully taught, that disciple will be like his or her teacher. So Jesus is pointing us to an impartation of life and character, not just a transfer of information, right? I think we think disciple, we think a student or a learner, and it's just the the cognitive. And Jesus is pointing us to more than just the information. And that's a very important distinction for those of us who are living as exiles, right? That's the series we're in. First Peter, we're exiles in this world. and, and, And so we're supposed to be becoming something. And that's not a passive process. That's an active engagement. So the goal is not simply for you to knowledge by being in the room, but to gain knowledge and experience and to let those experiences shape who we are and change us as people who claim to follow Jesus. Is it making sense? You guys tracking with this, right? So I can't ever remember wanting to be like any teacher that I've ever had. And maybe you're different. Maybe I had this great teacher. I wanted to be just like that teacher. I never wanted to be like any of my teachers. I remember appreciating some of my teachers. I remember really being apathetic towards most of my teachers. (laughs) I remember liking some that I had very much and, and, but I, I never remember wanting to pattern my life after any of them. And as I thought about this week, I realized why that's the case. Because I never got to see their lives outside of the classroom for one hour a day. And when I do, you run into your teacher at the mall, and it's like, Ugh, you're a real person. Like Context right, is everything. But I never, I never get to see their lives outside of that hour or so that I sat passively in their classroom. I, I was taught information, but I didn't get to see a life lived. Instead, I, I remember very much wanting to be like my dad at times, especially when I was really little. And I, and I could see his life And I remember wanting to be like certain characters in stories that I had read or in movies that I had seen. But again, it was about seeing those people, their lives in action, even if it was a story that was seeing life, I was seeing character lived out. I remember wanting to be like those people because that wasn't just information, right? And and so from the very first moment that we come into the world, listen, we begin to imitate. We begin to imitate. I, I love hanging out with Asher, who's wearing the Batman cape. If you've not met Asher, go, go meet him. I love hanging out with him. He's progressing through the same sequence that my kids progress through. And, and, and I love watching Matthew and Hannah make the same ridiculous faces and sounds with him that I remember making with my kids when they were that size. And it, it's, it's how he's learning to verbalize. It's how he's learned to communicate. And you guys will over there after we're done here this afternoon, before we start to break down and tear down and load up, and I'll be going, you know, I'll be making the monkey faces and talking, and making the sounds to Asher, and you'll be like, what is wrong with that dude? He's learning to communicate because he's watching. He's imitating, right? This is how we learn to verbalize, how we learn to communicate. We imitate. So here's our definition of imitation. To imitate is to take or follow as a model, to copy or to simulate. In short, you can say it like this. We reflect. That's all imitation really is. We reflect. There's, there's, a, there's a light shining down and we reflect back what's coming into our lives, what we're into our hearts. We reflect it. And and so I didn't realize um, the depth of my own depravity until I had children. <laughs> and they begin to reflect back to me. What my heart was really like, and, and some of you heard this story, but we're sitting in traffic one day, I think Noah was, oh gosh, she was probably 18 months, maybe two years old, and it was maybe right after Ethan had been born, so right at two, and and we're sitting in traffic, three lanes in one direction at a red light, and I'm in the middle lane, and I'm two cars back, and as the light turns green, both lanes on either side of me take off, and the car in front of me starts to move but at like one-eighth of the pace of the rest of traffic. And I noticed that the person behind the vehicle in front of me is a little woman with blue hair, and the steering wheel is about here on her, right? And so she's just kind of barely see over the dash, you know, that situation. And and my my heart's getting ready. You know, what's coming out is about to come out, and before the words get even to my mouth, I hear a little voice from behind me go, Come on, lady, move it! (laughs) And And I... I did exactly what you just did. I just kind of burst into laughter. I'm like, what in the world? Where did that come from? And, and I look over at my wife sitting next to me. She looks at me with a straight face. She's like, I wonder, <laughs> where did that come from? Right? He was just parroting what he had heard me say a dozen times in the car, right? The impatience of dad. And I begin to see, oh no, like my, my character, God wants to work on my character. These days of my life, I'm having conversations with my boys about what they want to do with their lives and, and ministry is a common theme in our discussions. And I'm inviting them to tell me at this stage as at 14 and 16, what I've done in their lives that's been helpful to this point. And I'm inviting them to talk to me about the things that I have done that haven't been helpful for them. And there are items on both lists, trust me. Right? And, and so, Both parents in the home are modeling, hopefully, life and godliness at all times. But let me, I just want to, before we get into the text too much, I want to make one thing really clear. Fathers in particular, men, you are modeling God the Father. This is Ephesians 3.15. um, Paul writes by the Spirit, he says, I pray to the father from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. The concept of father comes from the father. The modern psychologists will tell you we project father onto the sky when we think about God. But the reality of scripture says it's the other way around. We get the concept of family and father from God. And so if you're the dad in the home, we gain our concept of family. We gain our concept of dad from the role of father in the home. And, and dads are constantly speaking about who God is, what like, and, and we don't ever have the option of shutting up, ever. And when we attempt to avoid that responsibility, we're still speaking. We're just speaking all the wrong things. Guys, Can we never ever get out from under the mantle of leadership that God has placed on us in the home to model what the Father is like for our family. And children begin life imitating and reflecting, and we, we, we actually never stop that our whole lives. Even unto our dying breath, we're hardwired to imitate and reflect back. As exiles, we must reflect the image of the God that we claim to worship. And this is what Peter is getting at here as we look at verses 21 to the end of the chapter. Let's read it together. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of yours. Peter's laying out for us here in 21. He says, you've been called because Christ suffered for you. You've been called to this. He left us an example so that you could follow in his footsteps. We call this idea, Jesus is our example, Christus exemplar. That's out of the Reformation, actually prior to Luther, just a little bit. But it's Christ our example, particularly in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hardship. And Jesus suffered well. Okay, what do we mean when we say that? Jesus suffered well. Because everything that follows here, Well, maybe it'd be more helpful to do this. Let's unpack for a moment what it doesn't mean, okay? Uh, Say Christus exemplar is our total view of the atonement, what Jesus did to save us would be woefully insufficient. But there are views that hold this. And so first thing we've got to do when we look at a passage like this is we've got to pin down what is the essential problem that man has? Because how we define that will shape how we view God's solution to the problem. If we don't understand the problem correctly, we'll have an we'll incorrect answer to the problem. So, uh, so you get to, uh, if man's problem is ignorance about how to live holy, then your view of the atonement is going to be something like what theologians call the moral example theory. Okay? The moral example believes that Jesus' life and example and his honorable death were enough to serve as an inspiration to man, man who is spiritually alive, according to this view, not dead in their sins. And it's sufficient that, that inspiration for us to live now and to walk in obedience and holiness because now we've seen it. We're not ignorant anymore. Jesus showed us, right? And this view actually fixates on the life of Jesus and minimizes the cross and what it actually points us to. So you have the moral example theory, which I think, no, that's not quite right. And then more recently, in, in the 1920s all the way up to 2015, when this French intellectual Rene Girard uh, passed away, he gave us what we call the scapegoat view. Now, if you're with Leviticus at all, you know what the scapegoat is, right? And, and he, his view of the atonement was... This is the idea. Jesus' self-sacrifice overcomes and undoes the world's system of oppression and violence. So, So then man's biggest problems in that view are selfishness and violence. Now, I admit those are problems, but they're not the biggest problems. But in the scapegoat view... Social justice becomes the focus, and so more theologically liberal churches really like the scapegoat view. So do guys like William P. Young, the author of The Shack. Please don't go see the movie. Save yourself. Save your money. Um, Unfortunately, Michael gunger I really like Gunger's music, but he's a big proponent of this view, right? Fixated on justice, I put that in quote, right? Because Romans 3 says, justice is hell. Everybody deserves that. Uh, fixated on justice because human beings want what they see other human beings having, and that leads to selfishness and violence. And so then the next step is redistribution of wealth, right? So scapegoat theory dovetails really nicely with socialism. And the only justice sinners get fully is Romans 3, Romans 6, Revelation 19, the wrath of God. That's the justice that we deserve. And such an anti-violence view of the cross brazenly edits out the atoning nature of Christ's death. So we just put a big red X over those theories and say, no, the atonement for sin is not just a part of the crucifixion. It is the crucifixion, right? It is. There's the without it. In fact, Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And forgiveness, the need of every human heart is in the blood. It's only to be found in the blood. So, Modern voices like Gunger, William Young, Gerard essentially tell us your blood sacrifice theology is horrific. I could never believe in a God who would accomplish salvation through a cross. And we stand with John Stott, who would say, I could never myself believe in a God if it were not for the cross, if it weren't for the cross. So verse 22, Peter says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. He didn't threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And we talked a little bit about this last week. We talked about the reason that Jesus did not sin and did not deceive and did not revile or threaten was that he was ultimately trusting himself to the Father who judges justly, right? He knew who the just judge of all the universe is and he knows the character of the Father. And he knew that justice delayed is not justice denied. Just because it's not happening on my timetable doesn't mean it's not going to happen. So he could commit himself fully into the hands of the one who is going to see that justice would be done. And those are even, you think about the crucifixion, those are the words Jesus speaks on the cross, right? Into your hands, I commit my spirit. I'm entrusting myself to you. This is an unjust act committed by the creation that we have made as the Trinity, and yet I'm trusting that justice is going to be done. And it will. And it has been. So we reflect. We reflect. Verse 24. He himself who bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, and now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So then Jesus' submission and his trust in the Father opened the door for us to some things. They open the door for our justification. That's our standing justified before the earth. Like this is a legal, forensic reality. God looks at us and says, you are holy because of what Jesus did, right? It opens the door to our sanctification. That's our experiencing holiness. We have the Spirit come dwell in us so that we can become more holy. And then it opens the door to our glorification, right? Hey, love you. Come come worship with us, um, Opens the door to our glorification, our future lives. Sin's going to be a distant memory. I don't know if you can conceptualize an existence apart from sin. I have a hard time with that. But that's what awaits us. But the right now is the focus of Peter's letter. And and that we can and we should obey. And that we can and we should do. And we can and we should trust God. Even when things feel unjust. Even when it feels unfair. Life feels unfair. And so he quotes Isaiah 53 here. Let me read you. Verses four to seven in Isaiah 53. Surely he, this is a prediction about Messiah, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And yet the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He didn't revile, he didn't cuss, he didn't fight back. Jesus' wounds have healed us even when we were like straying sheep away from the protection of the shepherd, ignoring his call to come back to him. And so Peter says, but now you've returned to the shepherd of your souls. That's great, great grace. So let me just build the, from, from the beginning of the Bible to this, this idea for us, because the call for us here is to reflect. As exiles who are living in a place that's not our home, it's not our forever destination, one of the things Peter's calling us to by the Spirit of God is to reflect back the image of God, right? And so it begins in Genesis 1. God made imaging beings. He said, I made all these animals, made all this creation, made all this beautiful stuff, and then I made this special creation in my likeness and image and breathed life into the man. He was a living being. It's our design to reflect image. We can't help it. It's hardwired into us. We reflect image. We reflect glory. We reflect, we talk about worship. Listen to this. We reflect whatever has our time, whatever gets our, whatever takes our energy and our resources, we reflect what we worship. That's a good working definition of worship. Where, where's your time, energy, effort, and resources go? That's your worship. This has always been the case since man first breathed air at God's command. It starts in Genesis 1. It's so funny, you know, when we were in 1 Peter chapter 1, we we just went right past this verse and didn't see it in this context. But Peter says in, in chapter 1 verse 13, prepare your minds for action. Be sober minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be yours at the revelation of Jesus. And so as obedient children right now, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't let that shape who you are, but just as he who is holy, so you be holy in all that you do, because it's written, you need to be holy because I'm holy. So even back in chapter one, did, did you catch it, right? Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, the life that you lived apart from Jesus. Don't be like, don't become like, don't imitate, don't reflect what you once were prior to Christ. That doesn't glorify him in any way. Instead, be like Become like, imitate, reflect God in his primary attribute, which is holiness. So be holy because he is holy. But this idea of reflecting, it, it works both ways, right? It cuts both ways. And so we see Psalm 115 and we see Psalm 135. And go back to the Psalms and you see uh, the psalmist say, Why should the nations say, Where's their God? Pfft, our God's in the heavens, he does anything that he pleases. Their idols, listen to the contrast, their idols are silver and gold. They're the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear noses and they can't smell. They have hands, but they can't feel feet and they can't walk. They can't even make a sound in their throat. And then he says this, and those who worship them become like them. Interesting. 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 In Psalm 130, almost the same thing. Verse 15 to 18, The idols of the nations are silver and gold. They're the work of human hands. Mouths can't speak. Eyes can't see. Ears, they can't hear. No, there's any breath in their mouths. And those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. So the, the principle is, the reality is, we become like what we worship. It's an inescapable reality in this life. You can't escape it. You can't. And the harder you try, the more true it becomes. It's self-evident, right? We reflect the image of what we worship and not in a passive way, in a way that actually shapes and changes and alters who we are as people. So it builds You go back into the New Testament, you go to Romans, you read through Romans, you get to chapter 12. And Paul says, I'm I'm appealing to you, brothers. Please do this thing I'm about to tell you to do. By the mercy of God, present your bodies, this whole you, not just your voice, not just for 45 minutes on Sunday. All of you present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And that's your spiritual act of worship. That's your worship. Don't be conformed, there's that word again, shaped by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you could discern what the will of God is, his good and acceptable and perfect will. So, So Paul's saying, look, God is holy, so be like him because he designed us as image bearers to reflect him, to reflect. And then it cuts both ways. We reflect whatever we worship, whether it's him or whether it's something else. We're becoming like whatever we worship. And so Paul's point here is that worship is ultimately how we live. It's how we live our lives. It's The singing together is great. Love, love that part. Please don't get me wrong. As a former worship pastor, I love the, the worship and song. But that's just like a little tiny percentage of the worship that we're called to as believers. Because worship, by God's definition, is every decision that you make this week is worship. Every word that comes out of your mouth is worship. Every thought that we have is worship, and so Scripture tells us that our worship is revealing who and what we're becoming. Are we reflecting Christ in the things we're saying? Are we reflecting Christ in those moments of crisis? Am I? Am I? Am I, am I let me get personal. Am I reflecting Christ in moments when I'm bothered by my kid's interruption? Am I reflecting Christ by an unexpected moment? Somebody needs something and I just don't feel like I have time for that. Are we reflecting Jesus in the way that we worship? That's worship more than the songs, more than the singing, right? Worship is how we live. C.S. Lewis, he would say it this way. He says, every time you make a choice, you're turning that part of you, the part of you that chooses You're you're turning into something a little different than it was before. And you're taking your life as a whole with all of your innumerable choices, all of your life long. You are slowly turning the central part of you into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. Either it's a creature that's in harmony with God, with other creatures, with itself. Or else it's turning into one that's in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be one kind of creature is heaven, that is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness and horror and idiocy and rage, impotence and eternal loneliness. And each of us at every moment is progressing towards one state or the other. One state or the other. We're all being shaped and molded either into the image of the creator, or Paul would say in Romans 1, into a distortion of the creation. And all of that is worship. And all of that is worship. So you skip on a little further into the New Testament. You go to 2 Corinthians 3. And Paul says, we have a tremendous hope. And because of that hope, we're really bold. And we're not like Moses. He's going to bag on Moses here. Right, we're not like Moses. Moses put a veil over his face so the Israelites see the outcome of what was being brought to an end. You go, what was being brought to an end? Well, Moses had been in the presence of God and he was glowing. Right, he was glowing, and and Moses knew that the old covenant was a temporary deal and it was it was a covenant of uh, death because nobody could keep the law and if you couldn't keep the law, you die. And and that glory that Moses had from being in the presence of God was a fading glory. It wasn't a permanent glory. So he put a veil over his face. He wanted people to know that that was fading, right? So he put a veil over his face so the Israelites couldn't see that it was coming to an end. And their minds were hardened, Paul says. So even to this day, when they go back and they read the Old Covenant, that veil still remains there. It hasn't been lifted because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, this veil, it lies over their hearts. But when a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And so now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And so everybody who's come to faith in Christ, Paul says, we have unveiled faces, and we're beholding the glory of the Lord. In the same way that Moses saw God face to face and spoke with him, all of us have that same relationship. But The covenant's better, and it's permanent. It's not temporary. So whereas with Moses, the glory was fading away, Paul says with us, we're being transformed from glory to glory, and all this comes from the Lord who's the Spirit. It's not fading. It's increasing. If we're worshiping Jesus, the better. The image is getting clearer. should be. I don't know how you did this week. I'm like, eh, I kind of muddied the image a little bit. should be getting clearer, right? The old covenant was death because we could never keep God's law as a means of being righteous. It was God's mirror. It reflected his character to us. But for us, looking into the law of God, it only reflects back to us that it, our imperfection, our sin, our wickedness. Thankfully, that old covenant came to an end. God instituted a new covenant. And the new one brings transformation by the power of the Spirit, which is more glorious. It's a better covenant. And and then Paul continues the thought into the next chapter, into chapter 4. He says, so we don't lose heart. No reason to get discouraged. Like, I just give up. Don't lose heart. Even though your outer self is wasting away, your inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not only to the things that are seen, but do the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're temporal. They're temporary. The things that are unseen, those are eternal things. So even though these flesh bags, right, we call bodies, are getting old and sick and dying. How's that for an encouraging thought on a nice sunny afternoon? Our spirit's being renewed, right? Middle-aged people in the room, I know I'm in a minority here, feeling it this winter. It's like, dude, and I got young teenage sons who want to run hard and play hard and wrestle hard. I'm like, you're going to hurt me. Stop. <laughs> when did that happen? Not happy. Not happy. So even though I'm wasting away, so so excited about that. Wasting away. In our inner man, we're being renewed daily, renewed daily. And so any affliction that we endure, which is far less than the affliction Jesus endured right? Can we agree on that? Any affliction we go through, less than what Jesus endured, to be sure, that affliction is bringing glory to us. It's an eternal glory, and it's exceedingly beyond comparison to whatever we have to endure. The glory we're going to get is far better, better, bigger than anything that we have to endure here in terms of affliction. We're choosing now to look beyond the things that our eyes can see, Paul says, to the things that only our our hearts can hope for, right, in faith. And as we do that, we're reflecting the image of God. We're reflecting God in a way that Adam couldn't. You understand that? Better than the way Adam reflected the image of God. How does God want you to reflect him this week? i just put it to you really directly. As I've been talking for the last 30, 40 minutes, and maybe in your mind you go, man, I know, yeah, he's right. You're sad. He's talking about blowing it this week. I know I was really short with that guy at work or not nice to my spouse whatever, you know, in your heart, as a spirit, I hope, I pray every week that he's working on you as I'm preaching. He's bringing things into your memory and they're coming across your screen. You're going, yep, screwed that one up. Yep. Thank you for your mercy in grace, Jesus. I messed that one up. Right. Where does he want you to reflect him this week? At home? At work? At school? At Costco? <laughs> I don't like being in line at Costco. I don't feel very Christian. Eight people back with my cart, (laughs) my barge. It's really a barge. How does God want you to reflect Him? Will you invite him to lead moment this week in imitating him and reflecting him to people around you? I'm going to pray that for me, and I'm going to pray that for you. And I know that none of us are going to do it perfectly, but I challenge you to invite the Spirit to work in you anyway. That this week would be a better week in terms of reflection. It'd be a clarifying week for you. The image of Jesus would be clearer in your life than it was last week. Let's pray that together. Lord, we come to you right now and we pray that prayer. We know that we're not perfect, and in this life, we're never going to be perfect. We don't take that as an excuse or as permission not to engage your spirit. We don't uh, lean reality and say, well, then I'm not even going to try. We just throw ourselves on your mercy. We throw ourselves on your grace. Uh, we, we can no longer rely on temporal, cultural supports to reinforce our lives. Uh, as a church, Lord, we can't rely on those things to reinforce the message. We, we need to be moved by your Holy Spirit and by the message of the gospel again in our own hearts so that we would reflect you clearly to the people around us this week, Lord. We, we ask you to transform us, just as Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, that we would be transformed from glory to glory and all that from the Spirit so that we might reflect you more for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of salvation for people around us. They might come to know you, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.